Easter story says to us that it's all going to be okay and invites us to take a really deep breath and to find in the death and burial and resurrection and ascension of Jesus to the right hand of God to find in that a place of peace and security. Again, as we look at the flowering of the cross, the resurrection says to us that a new world has been born through the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's really quite a wonderful thought if you stop to think about it. I've had a practice for I don't know how many years now that during Holy Week, so Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, on each one of those days, I'll just take one of the Gospels and read through this passion story. And it begins to just remind me, yes, this is my story. This is the true story of the world. This is what's really going on because many days it just doesn't seem like it. It seems as if a vision of a new world breaking free actually requires us to like suspend judgment. And I don't know if you know, but there is new brain theory going on where they, they think they're testing that what really happens to Christians is that they suspend a part of their brain actually to any religious person. That they suspend the part of that brain that we would think of as cognitive or that through which we would analyze or have judgment about things. And I have to admit, sometimes it feels like we're doing that when you read the daily news, that this story can seem at best mystical or religious. It certainly doesn't seem practical, not when one considers terrorism, the state of world politics, War. You know, there are more wars, civil wars going on right now in the Middle East than there has been ever. And all are just a day or a week or a month from spilling over to neighboring countries. This feels like a tinderbox. Poverty, refugees, human trafficking, resurgent racism. So this apparent contradiction in fact seems confusing. And of course, you know, reading the story of the resurrection, this was the challenge for those faithful women with reference to the 12. The 12 were living in a reality of terrorism and war and things don't seem to be going right, right? These women go to the tomb and faithfully witness to what's real. And this is like apparently confusing. Like what really is reality here? And what was true of the women with reference to the 12 catch this with me, is true to us with reference to current society. But those faithful women did not let uncertainty rule their lives. Though they were confused about what they were seeing, it made no sense to them. <laughs> Look, no one rises from the dead. No one ever has before Jesus. No one ever has since. Dead people do not come back to life. So, of course, they looked at it and were confused. But they had to represent the reality that they were seeing and feeling and knowing to this group of people for whom reality seemed to be something totally different. And that's the position we stand in. And their model is our model. Because one person, or depending on what story you're reading, but let's think about Peter today. One person, Peter, decided to investigate their claims and, of course, as you know, becomes a key leader in the church. 
And this is precisely the way evangelism happens. We represent reality. Some people decide to investigate it, and they see for themselves. Well, Acts, our reading in Acts this morning, if you want to look at it in your bulletin, tells us a dramatic story in which both Cornelius and Peter have had vivid visions that leads to conversion. One, the way we'd think about conversion properly, and the other in Peter, the conversion of his mind. So I want to draw your attention again to the flowered cross and maybe pick out a flower that just gets your attention and just think, ah, this is a little life of God that Cornelius is experiencing. This is a story the book of Acts is telling us. Jesus is alive and we're still experiencing the work of God through him and the spirit. And then Peter's vision, pick out another flower. These are signs of life in the story of Acts. So Cornelius has this vision in which an angel tells him, or excuse me, an angel appears to Cornelius and tells him that God notices him and that his prayers and acts of kindness have come to God's attention. Peter has something like another conversion where he realizes that my previous assumptions about the Gentiles and about outsiders in general were all wrong. And so again, you just you have to try to put yourself in Peter's shoes. This was literally mind-blowing. Everything a Jewish person knew was that God had partiality. This is what they thought they knew for generation after generation after generation. Now, granted, they missed what we might call the doctrine of election, that their election, that their, their particularness was unto being God's people for the sake of others. We could say, okay, they missed that, but they didn't get the election part wrong. They knew they were God's special people. And so when Peter sees this vision and begins to understand that, wait a minute, what's happening here, whatever might be happening, is not that I'm clean and everybody else is unclean. And this is a major point. Like, could you use the word paradigm on Easter? (laughs) This is a major point in the book of Acts. This is a big part of the theme that's being told in Acts. Because the greatest challenge to the spread of the gospel was the division between the Jews, to whom Jesus had been revealed as the Messiah, and the Gentiles, or the Samaritans, the others. Those for whom the Jews thought they were either supposed to have nothing to do with, the Gentiles, or the Samaritans, the social psychology of the day was we're supposed to hate them. But Peter, having had this vision, obeys in spite of his background and his prejudices. And it makes me wonder, standing here in 2016, not in post-World War II 40s, not in the Jesus movement of the 70s, but it makes me wonder as a follower of Jesus standing here today in 2016, I wonder what sort of conversion of attitudes or thinking I need to talk to modern seekers the ones we're supposed to have nothing to do with, or the ones we're supposed to hate. I wonder what kind of conversion I might need. And as we struggle with this, this is why, if you you look at the back of your bulletin after we've done Eucharist, this is why week after week we say this prayer. Look at the end of the prayer of thanksgiving. 
Send us now into the world in peace and grant us strength and courage to love and serve you with gladness and singleness of heart through Christ our Lord. Now look at that with me for a second. Note the first word, send us. We too are God sent people. Where? Into the world. That means the broken bits, the bad bits, the bits who misunderstand us or hate us or think we're dopey and who think we have suspended judgment. It's precisely to them that we're sent. How? In peace. Not argumentative, not trying to win, not trying to put people down, not trying to show who's boss. Listen to me, please. Not trying to regain a privileged place in society. Go in peace with the world as it is. We're not afraid of it. Why? Because it doesn't matter how dark it is. Life is being born all around us every day. And thus a major part of Christian spirituality is to train our eyes to see it, to notice it, so that we can live into that which is also real. We pray to grant us strength because this is not going to be easy. We ask for courage because everything around us is going to feel like it wants to shut us down. And we ask for love, which is the positive bent of our will to do the good to others. It's not a feeling. It's the bent of a human will to do good to others. And to serve you, the Lord, how? With gladness. And what if just for the next week or months or six months, we focused on this next phrase, with singleness of heart? I mean, in some ways, you might say that Christian spirituality is kind of wrapped up in those three little words. How can we have a singleness of heart to Christ? And we ask all this through Christ our Lord. This is why we pray that prayer week in and week out. We're saying, Lord, it is dark, but life is everywhere. Would you train us up into that reality and send us? So back to Acts 10. Peter's words, of course, are important because they summarize the story of Jesus. But for he and Cornelius, the significance of Jesus' resurrection doesn't consist merely in knowing doctrine or reciting details about an empty tomb. Those, Those things are very important. I mean, the details around the resurrection are very important. It's just that that's not what's happening here. That's not what's primary What's primary here is that Jesus has just, sorry, Peter has just experienced what Jesus promised would be the case after the resurrection. Remember Jesus' last words to them? Go into the world. And then what was his very last words? And I will be with you forever and ever, even to the end of the ages. This is what Cornelius and Peter have just experienced. And and this is at least partially why why Peter is telling the story in this way. It's something like Cornelius, you and I are both being taught here. We're being led here. We're being guided here by God himself as he lives on in the spirit of Christ. So they're living the experience of the resurrected Jesus. This is what gives Cornelius and Peter then the confidence to act on what they've heard. Cornelius to go get Peter. Peter, having seen the vision, to go to Cornelius' house. And so in this way, the reality and message of the resurrection moves past mere apologetics and doctrine. And it's always fresh 
And it's always becoming new in the lives of those who, like Peter and Cornelius, seek and pay attention and desire. So again, thinking of this for myself, it makes me ponder, who is it who seems as far relationally from me as the Gentiles and Samaritans did from Peter? Would it be people with different views of human sexuality? Would it be the kind of recurring racism that I've talked about? Would it be people of a different political persuasion? Like who seems almost impossible for me to connect with? And what this story in Acts tells us is that because God is still alive, still present to his creation, still nurturing it towards its intended end, then regardless of how far non-believers and non-church people may feel from us today, all that Jesus lived and died for will never die as long as one of you, as long as one of us, keeps the voice of his message alive. As long as just one of us care about this, as long as just one of us are willing to tell this story against the backdrop of what seems to be incontrovertible social facts of war and poverty and injustice and hardship and hatred, as long as one of us are willing to be like one of those women, we're good. I want to close with this. I want to call it a poem, but I'm not sure it's a poem that I found by a lady named Katie Harmon McLaughlin, she writes, and I, and I ask you to just hear this, not just for its thought value or its cognitive value, but I want you to hear it with your imagination. She writes, the living Christ question is, what do you see? And now just think of those women. What do you see? Do you see this is impossible, people don't rise from the dead? Or do you see, wow. Today, in the name of Jesus Christ who lives, a relationship is forming, a warm meal is being shared, a welcome embrace is being offered. Today, in the name of Christ Jesus who lives, a hungering child receives nourishment. Today, in the name of Jesus Christ who lives, a weapon is laid down, the option of love overpowers the option of harm. Enemies become surprising friends. Today, in the name of Jesus Christ who lives, someone once cast aside finds inclusion. Someone who feels alone finds community. Today, in the name of Jesus Christ who lives, courage is born that leads to justice. A domination system is challenged. The way of peace emerges against all odds. Today, in the name of Jesus Christ who lives, someone once isolated by illness receives care. Someone grieving receives comfort. Today, in the name of Jesus Christ who lives, a hardened heart is softening, a broken heart is healing, a person once hopeless finds a reason to live. 
Today, in the name of Jesus Christ, who lives? Someone's worth is affirmed. Someone's given a cure, a mosquito net, a home. Today, in the name of Jesus Christ who lives, someone is doing something radical and courageous for love. A prophetic vision is unfolding. The kingdom of God come near. Today, in the name of Jesus Christ who lives, someone has felt loved for the very first time. Today, in the name of Jesus Christ, a reconciliation, a reconnecting, a rediscovering, a reinterpreting, a mind changed, a life transformed. Today, in the name of Jesus Christ who lives, good news to the poor, oppressed set free, captives released, sight restored, a stone has been rolled away from our own eyes. And suddenly, we cannot help but see all around us resurrection in action. New life happening even now, today, in the name of Jesus Christ who lives, you, you being called, you being loved, you being stirred to life deeper, to live the resurrection story again and again, to believe still in what is possible for this earth and for each of us. May you see May you be the living Christ in the world this day.